This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, March 9th. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, every drop counts in Telluride's water audit. County updates park policies. San Miguel Emergency Management wins state award. And a mountain weather forecast. But first... KOTO delivers the region's only daily news, and our weekly public affairs show, Off the Record, provides in-depth conversations with community organizations and people of interest. We work hard to honor the voices, needs, and culture of the community. Help support us during our winter fundraising drive at koto.org, and thank you. In its agreements with other owners of water rights in the area, including the Idorado Mining Company, Telluride is bound to a water management plan. This management plan requires a yearly audit measuring water use, water loss, and other important statistics. Presenting the 2022 water audit to town council this week, Telluride's environmental engineer Karen Gulamoni explained the audit's primary focus. And so the water audit looks at mostly and measures water efficiency. So how much potable water do we produce? How much potable water is used? And then we back off into how much is considered losses. Leaks, sometimes we have known leaks. We test our system for leaks, but there's also sometimes water. We just don't know where it goes. Um, And the goal is in water efficiency to make those, those losses, the unknown water, be as small as possible. Telluride's water loss has been reducing for years, according to past audits. That trend continues in readings for 2022, which saw the least amount of water loss ever. Gulemone says she would be skeptical of such stellar numbers. But we fixed so many leaks. And also with the boom in um, development and redevelopment, Public Works has been requiring uh, water service lines to be replaced. In addition to those upgrades, town has also improved its metering system, which improves data accuracy. Some of the water loss measured in prior years might have been due not only to leaks in the system, but equipment misreading water quantity. Councilmember Dan Enright noted that while water loss is down, the amount of water town is using has held steady. The water losses decreases. That is fantastic. Very feel very good on that. The authorized consumption seems to have stayed fairly stable, seems to have not moved much at all, which seems to sort of be the next target to potentially examine for us if we want to um, continue to be resilient and have the, the amount of water that we need. That seems to be the next needle that we want to move. Guillemone says the town might actually be serving more people with the same amount of water given an increase in residents and tourist traffic. And that I think we're seeing more people based on our wastewater BOD numbers than we did back in the day, let's say even in 2010. But you've just noted that our water, authorized water use has remained steady. And so that indicates that our water conservation efforts for the low flow fixtures, better irrigation systems, I think that we're, I'm not, I don't at this point see concerns about us running out of water. 
With the West facing a historic water crisis, issues of scarcity and drought hang over any conversation about water use like a storm cloud. Town attorney Kevin Geiger chimes in to note given the dire situation in the West, Telluride has done well to secure its water resources. So the town's very fortunate. I think you all know that. If you don't, let me reiterate it again. We are very, very fortunate to have, number one, so many senior water rights and then in such a large quantity as well. Uh, we've also implemented what's called an exchange plan, which allows the town to move basically seamless from Mill Creek to Pandora to any of our other water rights that we would want to use. They're all considered one accounting, if you will. The town's very lucky. Nevertheless, any measures to reduce and conserve water use from appliance upgrades to drought-friendly landscaping are part of the push for creating a sustainable future in Telluride. Through the years, the audit is in place to keep tabs on those numbers. Sometimes, local government is a walk in the park. That was more or less the case at a work session held by the county commissioners this week, which aimed to update policies and fee structures at the county's Down Valley Park, the Placerville Park, and the Placerville Schoolhouse. Last time San Miguel County updated its policies was back in 2010. Park Supervisor Rich Hamilton says some things have changed in the past 13 years. You know, back in 2010, some of the things that are happening today weren't envisioned, like drones, <laughs> like e-bikes and other technological advances. So a lot of that is addressed in this new policy. Proposed updates would specifically prohibit drone use, but allow e-bikes on certain trails. Updates would also officially ban campfires while allowing for propane stoves. Hamilton notes they also have updated language regarding pets. You can hear this amused the county commissioners. Right now, dogs and cats must be on a leash or under voice command. We wanted to clarify that dogs and cats and domestic animals must be under control and in sight of the owner at all times. Keep your chickens under control. <laughs> yeah. What we see is. Uh, the voice command thing gets pretty loosey-goosey when the dog's running around through the conservation easement and getting all muddy and tracking muddy paws, and the owner is on his or her cell phone and not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Policy updates largely address situations and issues that have come up over the years. One of those, Hamilton says, is park capacity. We wanted to clarify that the maximum size or use of the picnic pavilion is 50 people. Sometimes we get large events that want to use that area and it just exceeds the capacity. And we also want to add language to allow reserved use of the picnic pavilion, similar to the reserved use of athletic fields. Hamilton also brought forward changes in fee structures. Anyone wishing to host an event in a park is asked to pay a damage and cleanup deposit, which is returned to the user after the event if no damage occurs. Hamilton explains the proposed change. And that is for groups of up to 20 people, small events like local kids' birthday parties, we want to reduce the deposit from 100 down to 50, along with the use request form. Make it easier for local families. For large events, that damage deposit is $500. County Commissioner Hillary Cooper suggests they might look at reducing this number as well. I guess I see 
And I was just hearing prices of venues uh, last night from some folks. And it is unbelievable what some of our nonprofits have to pay around here to just have a fundraiser. So um, I like to view these as the people's parks. I would propose that we would reduce that 500 as well. Hamilton says they could consider such a reduction, but also notes the deposit is not a fee. And it's always returned when the event leaves the park in good condition. Just so you know, we do not cash those uh, deposits. Those checks are attached to their uh, special use or permit. And then after the event, we, we either mail those back to the applicant or rip them up. And other fee changes, small groups reserving the Placerfield Schoolhouse for multi-day events will now have to pay a modest rental fee. Defined as under 10 people, those small groups used to be able to reserve the schoolhouse free of charge. Commissioners voice support for all the policy updates and will vote on them in a finalized format at an upcoming meeting. Shannon Armstrong was called to service from a young age. Growing up in Telluride, she saw the importance of first responders firsthand. My dad was on the fire department. He was on the Placerville Volunteer Fire Department. And so growing up, you know, being part of that firehouse community was a big part of my growing up. Um, and I can also remember being little and like seeing his EMS books and flipping through them and seeing the pictures. And it's like, oh, cool. That's how you reset a broken bone, you know. And just so it's it's kind of always been there for me. After graduating from Telluride High School, Armstrong went to college at Colorado State University, but quickly returned to the Western Slope. You know, really what drew me is the same thing that draws everybody here, right? It's just it's the lifestyle. It's the mountains. It's being close to the desert, too. Um, and as I started getting into the workforce and realizing you know, I started in retail and I was kind of bored by it. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. And and it actually was my boyfriend at the time that pushed me into dispatch. And that's when it was like the light bulb went off. It's like, I this is what I want to do. I want to be a first responder in some kind of capacity. I want to serve my community and help my community in ways that I think some other people maybe don't know is out there. Armstrong worked as 911 dispatch for a number of years before moving over to the administrative side of the sheriff's office. When I left dispatch, you know, again, there's that, that hole that I wanted filled and I ended up joining the Norwood Fire Protection District in 2020. But I still just felt like there was more that I could be doing. And so it's just, I think it's one of those things that's ingrained in me and in certain people. And um, I, I wouldn't be happy doing anything else, I think. In December 2021, she was hired as San Miguel County's emergency manager. Really, in a nutshell, um, when something happens, when there's an incident, right, it's usually law, fire, or EMS that responds. They're charged with response and with incident stabilization. But depending on the size of the incident, there's going to be ripple effects out into the community, right? The community is going to be directly affected. And so that's where I come in. My job really is to look at all the hazards that affect our county and then kind of get an understanding of how they could impact our community and then how to, you know, protect against those impacts, mitigate those impacts, um, build resiliency, and then recover from an incident. After just over a year on the job, Armstrong was recently recognized as Rookie of the Year by the Colorado Emergency Management Association. And what was really cool about this year is they actually awarded it to three of us. Um, so yeah, I was just, I was deeply honored 
not only to have been nominated by my peers and by the people that I work with and look up to, um, but it was really cool to be part of this group and recognized as part of this group that's kind of young and up and coming and, and doing some good work out there. Being the emergency manager for a county is a big job. No one day is the same, an aspect Armstrong says she enjoys. She spends time making and testing plans, identifying gaps in the county's preparedness. But Armstrong adds she also wants to be there for members of the community to help them recognize their responsibility and help them through tough situations. You know, the term disaster and thinking about a disaster, that's a really big thing, and that can be scary and overwhelming. And so one of the things that I want to throw out there is for folks that are worried about, you know, a wildfire coming through or something like that, is to not think of it as a disaster, but think of it as a disruption. And then start thinking, okay, what do I need to do? You know, there's going to be a disruption in my daily life. How can I manage that? And so... One thing and one of the reasons that I am here is I can be a good resource for folks who don't know how to deal with that. And then also when something does happen, you know, there's everything when a disaster strikes, everything happens right away and it's chaos for the first couple of days. Right. But then things start to slow down. And so my job is kind of taking on a lot of that in the back end um, and just knowing that Everything that I'm doing is to get the community back on its feet. Lucky for San Miguel County, we have one of the best in the state working to make that happen. When Major John Wesley Powell and his crew first headed down the Colorado River, they had no idea what was in store. Sanctioned by President Ulysses S. Grant, Powell was charged with charting the river and its surrounding land for the first time, by white men anyway. That expedition is now the story at the heart of Telluride Theater's latest play, Men on Boats, by playwright Jacqueline Backhouse. Featuring an all-female intergenerational cast, Men on Boats pays homage to the sheer magnitude of the Colorado River and the bravery of the crew, with a side of cocky cluelessness and a comedic retelling of one of the West's most iconic expeditions. Men on Boats will perform its final weekend of shows at the Bob Black box at the Palm Theater, March 9th through March 12th at 7 p.m. Tickets are going fast and might be available at TellYourRightTheater.org. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is moving forward with its Western Slope Mountain Lion Density Study, with the aim of getting a better understanding of mountain lion population across the area. Starting in northwest Colorado in 2021, researchers moved to the Gunnison region last year and will stay in the Gunnison Basin for 2023. Over the next decade, the study will alternate between the areas. CPW biologists are placing GPS collars on adult mountain lions, in addition to putting a number of remote cameras in the region. So far, CPW has been able to successfully collar 35 Gunnison area mountain lions and will continue to collar more as conditions permit. By analyzing images from the cameras, CPW researchers can identify tagged mountain lions and those who are not. The relationship between marked and unmarked mountain lions will help CPW estimate the density in the area. With the data collected from the study, CPW says it will be able to develop more informed wildlife management decisions. Federal officials have suspended extra water releases from Flaming Gorge Reservoir in Utah 
and Wyoming amid forecasts of a strong runoff season. The reservoir holds water in the Colorado River system. The Bureau of Reclamation has been using Flaming Gorge to prop up Lake Powell, where dropping levels are threatening the ability to generate hydropower. But last month, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico asked the feds to hit pause on the current series of releases. They said it's been a snowy, rainy winter, and they want all that new water to help refill Flaming Gorge. Federal officials listened and suspended water releases starting this week. That's nearly two months before they were scheduled to end. Climate scientists say the strong winter will help ease the worst effects of the drought, but won't be enough to turn around the two-decade-long supply imbalance on the Colorado River. Three bills that would expand gun regulations in Colorado moved forward at the state capitol on Wednesday. KOTO's Lucas Brady-Woods reports they are part of Democrats' efforts to address gun violence. Colorado's current red flag laws allow law enforcement officers, family members, or household members to have someone's guns removed if they pose a threat. One of the bills would expand those laws, called Extreme Risk Protection Orders, or ERPO laws, to include teachers, doctors, and mental health professionals. Bill sponsor and Senate President Steve Fenberg says voters gave lawmakers a mandate to address gun violence. It is our job to have conversations with the community, with each other, with advocates, for us to constantly be asking ourselves what can we do to continue to move forward in saving lives. The other two bills would raise the minimum purchasing age for firearms to 21 and would make it easier for victims of gun violence to sue gun stores and manufacturers. Republicans oppose all three bills. They were approved by a legislative committee along party lines and will get a preliminary vote in the Senate next. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods at the state capitol. The city of Boulder has until the end of this week to respond to a lawsuit filed against it by the ACLU of Colorado. The lawsuit alleges that the city's camping ban violates people's civil rights by ticketing them for sleeping outside with a blanket when they have nowhere else to go. The city has filed two motions to dismiss the case, but a district court's decision late last month will allow the case to proceed. The case could set a legal precedent for similar camping bans across the state. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Alexis Kenyon spoke with Colorado ACLU attorney Annie Kurtz about the recent decision to hear the case. Annie, so one of the central tenets that the ACLU's lawsuit addresses is something that, you know, I think that a lot of people who are pro-camping ban may believe, that this idea that the reason that people are sleeping in public spaces. It's not so much that there aren't any other resources. It's that they choose to be sleeping there and that they want to be sleeping in these public spaces. How does your lawsuit address this belief and what have you found? Yeah. So um, the argument is that it violates the Constitution's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment to punish someone um, for sleeping outside on essentially the false premise that they have any choice in the matter. And so we have showed a lot of data that the city just doesn't have adequate space. But more than that, that even if there were theoretically an empty bed for someone to use, there are a whole bunch of barriers that might prevent a particular person from actually accessing that bed. So 
a ton of restrictions, right? People have to get into a lottery at a particular time during the day. Some people have pets, people with mental health conditions, trauma histories for whom the, the shelter is inconsistent with their, their needs. Um, and so something I really appreciate about the ruling is the recognition that it's not just about putting an extra mat down on the floor for someone, right? There needs to be shelter available that is, uh, that is realistic. Um, and the city has rejected every opportunity to create alternatives for folks, safe camping, safe parking. They have settled with, we are going to address this issue by punishing the people that we've provided no options for. And so there needs to be shelter available that is that is realistic. And that is certainly something that, that doesn't exist in Boulder. Well, what about on these days when it's really cold? I'm always hearing about, you know, rec centers being opened up and extra shelters so that everyone has somewhere to go. Are, are people still being turned away even when it's, you know, dangerously cold outside? Yes, they are. And the city enforces these laws without regard to the weather. You know, we, we allege in our complaint, people are getting ticketed for using a sleeping bag, for using a blanket when it's freezing and when it's below freezing out, when it's actively snowing, when there are inches of snow on the ground. And just to clarify, the city of Boulder's camping ban specifically allows people to be ticketed for using a blanket while sleeping outside which is, you know, somewhat ironic because when a person is turned away from the shelter, one of the only things that the shelter can offer is a blanket. Correct. So it's it's absurd if you think about it, right? The city is encouraging circumstances that expose people to risk of severe harm and death. And folks ask the police, right, where am I supposed to go? And the police don't have an answer for that. They're still ticketing people. Yeah, absolutely. What does getting the ticket do? I mean, it feels just incredibly short-sighted, right? I mean, the way the way I perceive it is not knowing or feeling maybe overwhelmed by what it actually takes to address this housing crisis, ultimately, is what we've got. And I think the policing route is a Band-Aid, right? It's I don't know what to do about this problem. And so I'm just going to try to push it out of sight for now. Um, and maybe that is politically expedient in the short term. I'm not sure. This is all conjecture on my part because I have a hard time understanding it in any other way. So the ACLU originally filed this lawsuit in the summer, I think in May. And then Boulder since then has tried to get it dismissed. Now it looks like Finally, it's moving forward. But since then, I mean, in the most recent city council budget, they allocated more money to law enforcement enforcing the camping ban. And they're talking about shortening the wait period between when they notify someone that they're going to take all their stuff and when they actually do it. And it just seems like in spite of this lawsuit and all of the discussion, the only action that's been taken is that. Boulder is continuing to enforce even more so the camping ban and this this practice of policing homelessness. And I mean, then also there's the day shelter. We still don't have a day shelter or any plan for one. Do you think that this judge's decision to not dismiss this lawsuit will affect any of that? I can only hope so. You know, I 
it is amazing to see Boulder and not just Boulder throw so many resources at this one tool of policing that we know doesn't work and is just cruel. And, you know, you asked, what is the impact of getting a ticket? And I, I gave a very, uh, you know, lawyer response about, you know, will they go to court and X, Y, Z happens. The consequences are much broader than that, right? It, it erodes trust. It, it scatters people around. It makes it harder for them to access their services. When the police take their things, you hear tons of stories of folks losing their, their most important documents. Um, and without those, it makes it harder for them to do things like get into housing, get on food stamps, do all these things that would help add stability. Policing as our number one mode of response just completely erodes that stability. And so it's incredibly frustrating. I can only hope that this order gets us further in the direction of actual solutions. Is there anything else that you would like to tell listeners before we let you go? I just want to, I guess what I want to add is this issue is so unnecessarily divisive, it seems to me. I think there is actually a ton of common ground. And if we can just be clear-eyed about the fact that I think all of us want to see fewer people needing to, to survive outside on the streets, then maybe we can start having some some real conversations about how to move toward that world that we want to live in. But it will require treating everyone in Boulder, all residents of Boulder, as city council's constituents, right? Boulder belongs to Boulderites, and that includes its housed and its unhoused residents. And we need to figure out how to live together and in a way where everyone has their basic rights, basic dignity respected. Annie Kurtz is a lawyer with the ACLU. Annie, thank you so much for talking with me. I appreciate you for having me on here and the chance to talk about this wrong. For KGNU, I'm Alexis Kenyon. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partial clouds tonight with a low near 25 degrees and wind gusts up to 25 miles per hour. Friday calls for snow, possibly shifting to rain in the afternoon, with a high near 45 degrees and wind gusts near 30 miles per hour. Friday night calls for a mix of snow and rain with a low near 35 degrees. Blustery conditions will continue. Saturday calls for snow showers with a high near 40 degrees and Saturday night should be smooth. And Saturday night calls for snow, heavy at times with a low around 25. This has been the news for Thursday, March 9th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to Kodo during our winter fun drive. A huge thank you to Rob Butler, Katerina Christian, Nancy Kraft and Rob Schultes, Catherine Cullifer, Lori Dabson, Linda Razzo, Eric and Josephine Felanius, Wes and Tracy Fuller, Alan Green, Larry Holmgren, Lori Jelnick, Ayla Kanow, Sanford Kryle, Patrick Loggins, Matthew Lang, Leroy Layton, Matthew Lazarus, Kara MacArthur, Douglas and Sandy McLaughlin, Dahlia Mertens, Dot and Bill Mayers, Dwight and Amy Olivier, Marie Penn, Pam Petty, Marnie Prince, Lucy Reeve and Jim Bedford. Dean Raleigh. Michael Sankey. Laura Centauri. Rick Simonson. M. Hope Smith. Jim and Joan Steinbach. Brad and Jennifer Tate. 
Tim Treadwell, Walter Weatherson, and Max Gancy. Thank you all so much. Thank you. And now, a personal commentary. The Telluride Choral Society presents Spring Sing 2023 on Saturday, March 18th at 7 and Sunday, March 19th at 4, both at Christ Church. If seasons were personality types, winter might be an introvert. Most definitely, though, spring is an extrovert. And our songs this year reflect it. And consistent with spring's energy, We'll be starting this year's spring concerts with an energetic surprise. Spring dances, spring plays, spring comes alive. And the program that Hal Adler and Elizabeth Forsyth have created celebrates all things spring. As has been our wonderful tradition of singing with our youth choirs, this year's full Telluride Choral Society's number is called Wanting Memories. We're so excited to sing this for our audience, and the fact that we get to share this wisdom with the kids' choir and our audience is pretty amazing. Susan Ensor will accompany on piano, and Dan Malloy will do percussion. So come join us, the Telluride Chorale and the Choristers, on Saturday, March 18th at 7, and Sunday, March 19th at 4, both at Christ Church. Tickets are at the door. And thank you, Kodo. This is Ginny Fraser from the Choral Society. For more information, call Sandy McLaughlin at 970-519-0081. And do check out Susan V. Brock's site, Telluride Inside and Out. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Koto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues. <laughs>